Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are up to part two on the series of Provence. I'm getting better at it, aren't yes. I? Um, number one was a big success. I got many comments. People really enjoyed hearing your descriptive way of describing, I guess, the yes. Jewish life in <laughs> in Provence. And this is going to be part two. But you get a Shalom Aleichem as well. I believe you were just in, in Budapest, was it not? Yes, yes. Not on a tour. The Kehillah there asked me to come in to speak over Tubishvat. And also I had access to the Kehillah's archives, uh, which was interesting. I mean, I wasn't there for very long, but uh, it was When you say Kehillah archives, I'm imagining this, this dull-lit room of parchments it's rooms and rooms of books no because budapest's community only dates really from the 19th century so it's not going to be parchment or manuscript but uh, they're in hebrew they're in mostly yeah yeah it's foreign mostly but just tons of it which is being sorted slowly right so you're not much of the cruise down the danube river man more the give me a hundred year old sforum. Yeah, yes, exactly, absolutely. Right, so part two on Provence. Right, so Provence in the Middle Ages had a network of yeshivas. Narbonne, Lunel, Montpellier, Marseille, and others were centers of learning. And even from as far away as Cairo, the Rambam singled out Provence as a great center of study. Although it's perhaps important to note that the names of many of the towns that I've mentioned won't be found on a 21st century map, either because they are the Hebraicized version. So Lunel, which means a moon, is given, it rendered in, in Hebrew as Hayarchi, Montpellier, is Min Hahar. You've got Rabavrom in Ahar, Abusib in Ahar. But there's also another reason, and that is that sometimes the names have changed dramatically and have no relationship to the present names, Posquier, Marvege. And as we mentioned, Provence was an area of independent thought and life, although quite a number of their halachic rulings have become contemporary for, in other words, we use them. An example is their definition of what type of kois, of cup, may be used for, let's say, kiddush or sedanite, has led to the ruling that any vessel which is chipped may not be used. And Ramosha Feinstein, basing himself purely on their decision, rules that a plastic disposable cup shouldn't be used for kiddush. Although at the same time, other halachas were not accepted, such as their rulings about burials on first day Yontif, or the fact that they only had one cup of wine at a chuppah, only one hagafen, not two, which I guess would limit the chances of staining the wedding dress. But would limit the amount of photos. So I guess it's a ruling that's unlikely to be rolled back. Yes, the photographer is king. <laughs> um so, in the context of halacha, 
I'd like to discuss three of the Chachme Provincia, three of the scholars of the region, all of whom lived um, in the 12th century. The first is Rav Zerachia Halevi of Lunel, a Yarachi, therefore, um, who is normally abbreviated as the Raza, but is almost always referred to as neither of those, but as the Bal Hamor, after his most famous work, which is printed at the back of every Talmud. He was born approximately 1115 in Spain to a uh, prominent family, but he settled in Lunel already probably in his late teens. His pupils included Rubshmul Ibn Tibon. This family, the Ibn Tibon family, are very famous for translating from Arabic into Hebrew the most famous texts of the time so that the Ashkenazim and the Provençals could learn them. This includes the Kuzari, the Chovis Alavovis, the Rambam's Mirunavuchim, all of which we will come to next week. Now, Reb Zerachia was not only Talmud Chochem of note, he was also deeply knowledgeable of philosophy, astronomy, and a gifted poet, a, a Paitan, and at least a dozen of his piyotim are included in the Svardi Machzairim. The Ramban says about the Balamoyer that he never wore tzitzis, which is not surprising, because the Balamoyer ruled that tcheles, this bluish color, is an integral part of the mitzvah, it's not a secondary part. It's not a second mitzvah. And since we no longer have treles, you can't fulfill the mitzvah. He also ruled that the, the nine brachas that we say in the silent prayer of Musaf on Rosh Hashanah should actually be said for all the four tefillas of Rosh Hashanah, basing himself on the wording of the Mishnah. But interestingly, he rules that since at the time most people didn't have sidurim. Obviously, everything was handwritten, and therefore they prayed by heart, or they listened to the chazan, which made it unlikely that they would know the exact wording for these very unfamiliar middle three brachas. So he ruled that the general community should only say the regular tefillah that we say nowadays, made up of seven blessings, but the chazan has to say all nine both in their silent and in their repetition. So you can imagine that Shul went on for a bit <laughs> on, on Rosh Hashanah. And also with regards to Rosh Hashanah, he says that historically in Eretz Yisrael, they only kept one day of Rosh Hashanah until the arrival of the Balotasis in the 12th century. He is also the first source for the idea that hot food on Shabbos is not just a sort of, you know, a culinary choice but rather an actual requirement to disassociate from and, and disprove the Karaites, the crime, who would not allow any flame to burn through Shabbos and therefore did not allow the consumption of any hot food on Shabbos, even if the flame was lit on a Friday. So, for instance, the Rambam writes that you can identify a Karite synagogue on Shabbos by the fact that it is in darkness. And therefore, the Balamor is the one, and this is codified in Halacha, who says that one should have 
specifically hot food on Shabbos. But the Balamora's most famous psak for, at least for the 21st century world, the pre-COVID world, was his ruling on the international date line. Both the fact that halacha has a line where the date changes and where its location is are based on his ruling, which is sort of, you know, 700 years before they introduced Greenwich Mean Time. Aren't there different opinions about the location of the date line? Yes, there are four accepted opinions by today's Paiskim, as those who've recently gone through the Dafyam of, of Rosh Hashanah will, will know. But they actually all use the Balamoyer as their basis for deciding the location of that date line. Now, Reb Zerachia's main work was called the Sefer HaMoyer, which he began at the age of 19, but completed much later in life. And it is a critique of the riff. Rabbi Yitzchok Al-Fasi, who was from Fez originally, who had lived in the 11th century and was the greatest Spanish halachic authority and the first to codify halacha. And the Sefer Hamor is divided into two parts, so to speak. The first, called Hamor Hakaton, is on Seder Moed and Brochus and Chulin. And the second, Hamor Hagodel, is the main tractates that are learnt in Yeshiva of Noshim and Nazikim. And his main authority, so to speak, for this work is logical reasoning. And this independence of his and the the fact that it was so to speak an attack on the riff led to two svarim being written to counter or to blunt his critique with strong language being used all around these two svarim one was written by the ramban and Nachmanides under the title of Milchomes Hashem, and the other, which is actually earlier, was written by the Rivad, whom we will discuss in a moment. They felt that the Balamora was too young to criticize the greatest Spanish Poseik, and it was sort of audacity. Although, having said that, the Balamora holds his own, and interestingly, the riff is always printed with the commentary of the Balamora. You learn the one with the other to this day as you do the other two svarim they're also printed on the page now the balamoyer actually ended his days in girona back in spain so clearly he was a partisan to svarim and therefore his uh, writing against the riff had nothing to do with the place where he spent most of his life the second person is rubavrom ben david who is known as the Rivad, although technically it's actually the Ra'abad, because it's Ben David. He was born in Provence around 1125, and he died in November of 1198. He was one of the three greatest halachic minds of the 12th century, alongside the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam. And in fact, in, in sheer volume, he wrote as much as they did, but just not in one collected place. He authored hundreds of responsa. Just to, to mention one, his ruling on the limited level of sanctity of the Kedusha of the Mokoim Hamikdash in Yerushalayim nowadays is a very important halachic influence on the decision regarding being able to enter the Temple Mount. 
So this is just a one example of many, but one that's contemporary. So who was the Rivard? Didn't you just say who he was? Well, you see, the Rivard has many lives because there wasn't one Rivard in the 12th century. In fact, there weren't even just two. There were three. Mm. Rivard one was Rabavram Ibn Daud, who lived in Spain. He wrote works to defend Judaism against Karite attacks. He was a philosopher, and his writings, in particular the Sefer Ha'emunah HaRama, was almost certainly used by the Rambam, and he's unrelated to Provence. Rivard II is from Narbonne, and he's actually called Rabbi Avraham ben Yitzchok. So why is he called the Rivard? Is he, isn't he called the Ravi? Right, he is ben Yitzchok, that is true technically, and in many Svarim he is referred to as such, but he was known as Rabavram of Bezdin, mm. he was the head of the Bezdin of his town, and hence the title Rivard, Rabbeinu Avraham of Bezdin. Um, and he wrote a sefer called uh, Sefer Eshkel, which is a system of categorizing halacha. And in his yeshiva, he taught at the same time the Balamor that we mentioned earlier and the third Rivard, <laughs> the one that we are mainly going to be discussing today. Very confusingly, he was also the father-in-law of the third Rivard. The family tree must be a mess. Right. So when people say the Rivard, really the question should be which one, although generally we're referring to the, the last of the three. Most of the Rivard's works are actually lost. Some survive, such as the uh, Sefer Balea Nefesh, which is on the laws relating to women. And he also authored full-length works on Kashrus, on Nida, and on Lulav. In fact, the Bodleian Library has a manuscript which was printed in 1949 of his drosha on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Perhaps more than one, I don't know, but they have it Which there. you've no doubt seen. Not yet. I, mm. One of the things on my list when I next <laughs> go back. But much of what the Rivard wrote and what he studied nowadays was unconventional. His methodology, his style was a critique, and he is referred to as the Baal Hasogos, the, the critic, because of the nature of the books that he wrote. Now, in terms of his origins, we know little about his personal ancestry, though the Rambam writes a letter in which he adds to the Rivard's father's name, Zecher Tzadik Levracha which nowadays is sort of, you know, used for anyone, <laughs> but not so back then, and especially the Rambam, he did so quite rarely. So clearly his father was a person of scholarship. The Rivard's first rabbinate was in Montpellier, the second one was in Lunel. In both he had a successful yeshiva, and his last position was in Posquier, which is not far from Nîmes, and it is the city with which he is historically associated, and to this day... A street exists with his name. In the 12th century, it was a small place. Uh, and because it was a little secluded, surrounded by forests, it was conducive to study. 
and the Ryford was personally wealthy, and he would pay for the board and lodgings of students who couldn't afford them. And Benjamin of Tudila, the famous traveler who wrote a diary, visited Posquier during the Ryford's lifetime, and he left a uh, description of the yeshiva and of the Ryford's care for his students. How was he wealthy? It seems to have come from his father. It isn't clear what the source was or in what particular area. Now, there was a very disruptive event to his life in 1172, which, interestingly, was only really known without details until a manuscript was discovered in the early 20th century. What happened was that in 1172, he was suddenly imprisoned. The source of his problems was the local landowner who was jealous of his wealth and made a play for this money. And Rivard uh, could have languished there indefinitely, but Count Transavel intervened. He was friendly to the Jews and he outranked the local landowner, which meant that the Jews of Posquier really were under the Count's protection. And he ends up exiling this landowner to Carcassonne in 1173, at which point the Ryvid is able to return safely and remain there till his death. It must be said that the Ryvid wasn't much of a traveller. Uh, so, for instance, although there is correspondence between him and the scholars of northern France, the Balitosphus, he never visited Paris or Sens or any of these other Torah centres, although he did visit Spain, in particular Barcelona. Now, in terms of his most famous writings that he is often known for, there are two svarim of commentary, of rebuttal, directed at two main individuals, the Rambam, Maimonides, and the Balamor, who we mentioned earlier. And he wrote both of them for the same reason. The Rifa's criticism of the Rambam's Mishnah Torah is very harsh and i'm sure you're about to say this but right things be noted it was very harsh writing yes so what needs to be understood is why it was written and also that it was not written using this language due to any personal ill feeling as i will hopefully demonstrate but rather as a result of very different views in the matter of masera the the correct method of passing Torah to future generations, which both the Rivad and the Rambam saw themselves as very responsible for. And in fact, to this day, their works are indispensable in, in Halacha, in Masera. Now, prior to the Rambam writing the Mishnah Torah, if you wanted to know Hilchus Shabbos, you wanted proficiency in the laws of Shabbos, there was only one way. You needed to learn the entirety of the Talmud because every tractate has some of those laws, some of the underlying logic and theory, and therefore until you have it all, you've got nothing. The Rambam's aim was to bring order to this uh, vast uh, labyrinth in a methodical manner. All of Hilcha Shabbos is now contained in 30 chapters. It's all there comparatively sort of easy reading. But to the Rivard, this very aim was the main defect of the work because the Rambam didn't state the sources, the the page, the chapter from which his decisions were derived. And therefore the Rivard 
felt that such a, a code could be justified basically only if it was written by a man who was infallible. And the Ravid felt it was his duty to oppose this work. Also, having the legal outcome, the, the so to speak, dry halacha, without the underlying understanding of how you got there, would hamper the study of Torah. Because any question that now arises that is slightly different to the one that's been codified, so now how do you decide the issue? How are you going to pasken? You, you don't know why the conclusion was arrived at. And remember, you can't go back to the sources. Indeed, much of the Gemara is just the back and forth in order to Correct. show how we reach conclusion. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what the Rivet felt was being neglected with the Mishnah Torah. And subsequently, we will see the same thing happen when the, when the Shulchan Aruch was created. Now, of course, there's no doubt that the Rivet as a personality was an independent individual, sort of very Provençal in that sense, possessed of you know, great self-esteem and confidence, logical, and engaged in a quest for that which is true and accurate, and therefore confrontational. Equally, there's no question that he respected the Rambam as a towering intellect, but he saw a danger, and he argued each halacha within the Mishnah Torah that he felt was questionable or, or incorrect. Um, now, he was very fair in portraying the position of his opponent. He would present their opinion first and fully to enable the reader to judge the validity of the, you know, conflicting views. Right, so there's clearly no ego at play. No. In one instance, in, in his critique of the Balamora, let's say, so the Balamora quotes Rav Haigon, and based on that, uh, refutes the statement of the, of the riff. The Rivard, who wants to vindicate the riff, first of all, amplifies Rav Haigon's statement and then goes on to demonstrate why the riff is right nonetheless and why the Balamor was wrong. So that's the type of individual that he was. He was looking for truth. And, you know, we find that he asks one of his friends to supplement and correct his statements if he finds it necessary. And to an admirer, scholarly admirer who writes to him, he replies, I've seen your letter and I'm, you know, unworthy to answer the question. And equally, he wasn't reluctant to show doubt. And sometimes he gave an explanation, which he then revised to the extent that Although they were at, so to speak, loggerheads, the Rambam describes the Rivard as the great rabbi of Pasquier. And uh, there was a Provençal scholar who had, for some reason, moved to Egypt. And the Rambam mentions with uh, obvious approval that he had been a student of the Rivard. So it is strong and harsh, but it's not personal in that sense. It's a quest for truth. Right. Now, a typical comment, just to understand how harsh, so in the uh, Rivet on the Rambam, he writes at one stage, Kol everything written here has got no source in the Gomorrah or the Tesefta, nor does logic allow for it. In other words, it's completely wrong. That's, <laughs> you know, the level of, of comment. They all believed it was important to be strong because they were dealing with the foundations of terror. It's not just sort of a, you know, a chat about politics about which 
anywhere you can't do anything or about your finances the economy where at worst what could happen is that you go bankrupt here you stood to lose terror to lose life what's under threat is Masera, and with the rumbum writing without sources it's almost heretical and therefore similarly when the rivad writes the refutation of the balhamor he felt he was undermining the greatest authority of spain and was no match and it needed to be demonstrated and what's interesting as i mentioned is that the balamor in posterity is always printed with the riff to show that both approaches are indeed valid as it's the rivets always printed with the rambam yes and in the main body text uh, which shows the importance of his work and the esteem with which he was held and arguably the Rivard's critique prevented the replacement of the Gomorrah with the sort of exclusive learning of the halachic codes of the Rif and the Rambam. And the Rivard is, is quoted by everybody who lived after him. Nachman is the Ramban, the Rashba, who, who calls him the Melech the king, the Rosh, the Tor, the Shulchan Aruch, obviously, the Bali Tesvis. And therefore, he is seen very much through the writings of others. When did he pass away? So he died in 1198, and it was very unusual, because, as you are aware, Kehanim are normally forbidden from contact with the dead. They dug his grave. The Gomorrah tells us that Kehanim dug the grave of Rabbi Huda Nossi, who was the author of the Mishnah, or the person who put the Mishnah together. And in connection with this, Rabhaim Hakoen, who was one of the Balitosis in the 13th century, he expressed his respect for his own teacher, Rabbeinu Tam, by saying that had I been present when Rabbeinu Tam passed away, I would have made myself tame by sort of contact with his corpse. And the Rambam also writes that if the Nasi, the, the acknowledged head of the Jewish people, dies, then even the Kahanim make themselves impure. So it is an unusual event that took place at the end of his life. But perhaps the most unexpected area of the Rivad's life is his teaching of Kabbalah not just sort of incidentally that he happened to know Kabbalah and passed it on, but it's actually central to the chain of transmission of Kabbalah. Now, his writings that we are aware of are almost devoid of Kabbalah. But the reason he doesn't write about Kabbalah, as is testified by one of the pupils of the Rashbal, is that the preferred method of transmission of Kabbalah in particular is through an individual, not through a book. And in this case, it was an individual very close to home who was the author of a commentary on the Sefi Yitzira, which was possibly the central text of Kabbalah at the time. And that individual was his own son, Rabbi Yitzchok Sagi Noho, Rabbi Yitzchok the Blind, who then goes on to report many ideas in the name of his father, the Rivad. And Rabbi Chaim Vital, the main pupil of the Ari, uh, talks of the fact that the Rivad had Gil Eliola, Eliola Novi, appeared to him and taught him Torah. And the Rivad is widely considered to be the source of the commonly used diagram of the ten spheres uh, that were ultimately written down by his son, Rabbi Yitzchok Sagi Noher. 
So that's two out of three so far. Wow. <laughs> Just one that you're doing well. <laughs> okay. And the third one. So we now come to Rubyakov of Marvege, who produced a work of just under 70 responsa. Well, I say he produced it, but really he just wrote the questions because the answers were provided supernaturally by angels. And they cover a range of topics. And we have manuscripts already from the 14th century in various libraries around the world, in Moscow, in the Munich State Archives, in Oxford. And they are testimony to the fact that these responses had actually spread wide and far. And they were accepted as being authentic in the sense that both the individual, Rubyakov himself, was authentic and that the responses that he obtained were authentic. But this doesn't mean that they were accepted halachically because we have a, a sort of a maxim in the Talmud that regarding Torah, it is not in the spiritual realms of, of heaven, but here on earth. In other words, it's the duty of us, of the Jews, to determine and decide halacha and not to pay attention to uh, um, heavenly contributions. <laughs> and this is famously elaborated upon during a dispute between Rebbe and the Chachamim, the sages, to the degree that even when a voice came from heaven saying that Rebeliezer was right, they paid no attention to it because there are rules of psak, of halacha, and one of them is that a majority versus an individual, we follow the majority. I would probably sway a little if there'd be a voice coming down from the heavens. So let me tell you how far they did not get swayed. In other words, they didn't disagree with the fact that this voice emanated from heaven. They were trained enough to be able to recognize it, but that did not alter the decision-making process. And when Rebeliezer did not accept their ruling, he was put into cherem, he was excommunicated, which is, if you think about it, incredible testimony to the strength and importance of human intellect in the decision-making of halacha. When the Torah says when the Novi says, Ki nosati lochem, I have given you my Torah. It's not just poetry. It's a halachic ruling. Right. It's here. It, because it really begs the, the larger question as to surely in heaven things are known and truth is clear. And we are just swayed by everything that we're swayed by down here. Why it would be worthless. So that, that's a whole share Sorry, in its that's own gone right. A, that's got a bit off topic. I, um, I do have a share on that, but we can't go the whole way down that road now. What I will say is that the idea of, you find that when Moshe Rabbeinu died, the Gemara in Tmura tells us that they forgot a number of halachas and they came to Yeshua and they said to him, ask Hashem. And he said, no can do. This is Mishra Benu's method of transmission was that, but this is not how it works anymore. We now have to use our analysis and logic to replace those forgotten halachas. That is the transmission of Torah. And therefore, it wasn't at all straightforward that these shalos of truvis min hashamayim, these responses from heaven, should be accepted. And in general, the, the sages of Spain, like the, the Rambam and the Rashbar, were strongly against accepting these or similar ideas, whereas the 
The Balitisas, the Ashkenazim in the north, were more prone to accept them. We find the Ravon, in fact, a number of uh, Ashkenazi scholars, uh, the Orzarua, used this to determine how a name should be written in a get, in a bill of divorce, which is quite important. The Marama Rottenberg writes that he had the practice to decide in a particular way, but was shown differently in a dream and changed his psak. Uh, this is while he was imprisoned in Enzisheim. And Rabbeinu Eliyahu of London in the 13th century similarly was shown something in a dream. However, that doesn't explain if the Talmud seems to decide strongly against it, how can we overturn the ruling? So the truth is that even within the Talmud, we find instances to the contrary and a resolution is proposed by the Me'iri, as well as by others over the years, such as Chavisio, the Maritzchius, that if we're talking about finding the actual answer to a question, simply by sort of asking heaven, we cannot do so. However, if it is a case that we've reached an impasse and there is no way to come to a singular conclusion based on the facts and information in existence at the moment, we can allow spiritual influence to weigh slightly one over the other. In fact, the source for this is the ongoing dispute between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel. The Gomorrah and Eirevin tells us that for three years they disagreed about whom we should decide according to, until a divine voice said, Elu ve'elu, they're both the words of God, but the halacha is like Beis Hillel. And that's why we follow Beis Hillel, because of this voice from heaven. Teisvah says, we are simply shoring up the decision rather than creating it, as we mentioned. Right. Could you share with us some of the questions that were answered? So they're almost all to do with halachic issues, often those that had not been resolved, so to speak. They are sometimes differences between the Rif and Rabbeinu Tam, the two giants of Svardi and Ashkenazi halacha. The question that opens the Sefer is whether women should make a bracha over non-obligatory time-bound mitzvahs, mitzvahs asay shazman groma, for instance, sitting in a sukkah or halal or rishchodesh. In a halacha nowadays, we normally come to a divide. Most Svardi opinions do not allow women to make this bracha, and Ashkenazi opinions do. Another question was asked whether you make two brachas on putting on tefillin, one on the shel yad and one on the shel roish, or only one. Now, interestingly, in these cases, the answer that was given in Shalos Atruvis Menashemayim, in one case, the first case follows Rabbeinu Tam, women can make a bracha, and in the second case it follows the riff that you only make one bracha over tefillin. The most famous question is whether Rashi or Rabbeinu Tam is correct regarding the order in which the four paragraphs are written for tefillin. We know there are two famous opinions, which according to some uh, date back a lot earlier than Rashi's times. And some people put on two pairs of tefillin every day as a result. Although um, the Gaon was of the opinion, and as are others, that there are actually more than two opinions. So this question was asked, you know, who's right? And the question was answered with the words, just as there is a dispute below in your world, so too there is a dispute up in heaven. Which, by the way, goes to the question that you mentioned earlier, the clarity in heaven. 
there, even there, there is an allowance for it. And we find this exact phrase in a different context in the, in the Gemara as well. But it is basically telling us that there are certain areas of Torah where there are two different but perfectly valid approaches to Torah. And I guess that's an approach that characterizes Provence and its scholars. Not everything is neatly tied in a bow. In one case, in only one case, is there a specific date included in the responsa? It was the day before Rosh Hashanah in 1203. But we know that most of the responsa must have been written after 1198, because when the rived is mentioned, it is in the past tense, so he'd already passed away. And therefore, all in all, this was a very unusual safer, but very fitting for the highly intellectually challenging atmosphere of Provence. And therefore, this evening, we've seen the efforts of three sages in the 12th century. And I think it's important to know about them, both for those who may never have heard of them, but equally for those who regularly study their works, the Rive de Balamor, because understanding the context gives much more meaning to their writings. And I would say that my research for this series has made me understand the context of their Svarim much more. Yeah, I believe that's the beauty of the podcast in general, of all the day-to-day things. I specifically found in controversial prayers how much background there is to things we do every day, people we learn from every day that we, right. well, I say I, just don't know anything about. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. This was part two, and we'll see you next week for part three. As usual, any comments or feedback can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much. Thank you.